Hello everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Myths and stories are essential tools and guides for creative living in this crazy world, and I want to share some of what I'm learning from them with you. Today I want to talk about a very powerful tool that is readily available to all of us, a tool that is so ubiquitous, so woven into our daily experience that it appears simple and its power is easily overlooked. That is the power of names, the names that we use, that we give to things or don't. I've been thinking about this in the context of the Titanic. And if you have tuned in for the last couple of episodes, you know that we've been talking about the Titans. That image and that term, Titan and Titanic, comes from Greek mythology. And the early story about the Titans, who were the first order of gods, so to speak, involves a 10-year war that they fight against Zeus and the Olympians, in which the Olympians win. That was our jumping-off point, the story of the Titan Amachia. And since then, we've talked about the fact that the Titanic, as an experience and a phenomenon today, represents our longing for the unbounded and the unlimited And subsequently then, the excess and the violence that results from that attempt to reach for that unbounded. Now, the cornerstone of all of this is the understanding that the Titanic as a psychic, psychological reality and state is inherently empty. That's how it doesn't have any limits, because it's unimaged, lacking images. It's abstract. And the rhetoric and the practice of the Titanic is the rhetoric and practice of enormity, grandiosity, and inflated sense of self. And all of these things are fueled by the abstraction and the tendency towards globalizing and universalizing and generalizing language. Now, we've also talked about Prometheus, who was a titan and also was the patron of human beings, perhaps even our creator. Prometheus brought us fire. And in this action, bequeathed to us this titanic longing for the unlimited, and in particular, its expression via our technologies. Human beings have created a vast array of tools and technologies to escape the limits that are imposed on us, the limits in the natural world, the limits of our bodies, the limits of our understanding, to extend ourselves and escape as many constraints as possible. And this has brought us a lot of gifts, but it has also been a real challenge because we find it hard to know when to stop. 
and we don't always recognize what is in fact impossible or recognize the long-term consequences. So that's the Titanic. Now, the mythological opponent, as I mentioned earlier, to the Titans is Zeus and the Olympians. And in following James Hillman here, we discuss the fact that Zeus and the Olympians are the opposite or the point-counterpoint to the Titanic because they are a differentiated imagination, because they are specific, specific characters. The Olympians, as mythological figures and characters, are highly elaborated. They have many, many names and dimensions and plants and animals. Just a whole gestalt has developed around each one of them. Each one has a particular sensibility. And that's what we're talking about here. In fact, one way to understand the god Zeus's many love affairs and infidelities and all of the children that he brings into the world is this generative power that the God in so doing is continuing to proliferate the creative possibilities in the world. So we have this titanic emptiness and then we have this other impulse, inherently imaginative, that peoples, if you will, that empty space, that populates it and fills it up. Now all of this is kind of heady concepts, and in the last program I gave you the example of Neil Gaiman's war between the gods in American Gods, where he posits a very abstract, that is, titanic set of gods against the old, particular, familiar, highly elaborated, that is, Olympian-type gods. I've come across another example that came to me via Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a hero of mine, and as you may know, he recently won the highest humanitarian award that you can win from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And I downloaded the text of the talk that he gave in accepting this award, and it revolves around this idea that he got from Wallace Stegner. He says that Stegner thought that we Americans have been divided into two kinds of people, boomers and stickers. Boomers, he said, are those who pillage and run, who want to make a killing and end up on easy street, whereas stickers are, quote, those who settle and love the life they have made and the place they have made in it. The boomers motivated by greed by the desire for money and power, and stickers are motivated by affection. Now, the boomer, as you may have already picked up, is a great uh, metaphor for a particular type of titanism. Someone who is in the practice of the gigantic who wants to make a bunch of money through the mega corporation on the backs of millions and every aspect of this process, everything that goes into it, every person who's involved, every place that is involved is anonymous. It's all assumed under the abstractions 
of big money and power. And the sticker is someone who is tied by bonds of affection and responsibility to a particular place and a particular then set of neighbors, human and non-human, that place demands upon them. Barry is an advocate for the power of affection, and he links this to imagination and imagination to the ability to really see and recognize what's around you. And this is where I want to segue to the power of names. The power of names. Language is actually one of our earliest and most powerful technologies. What we call things, whether or not we give something a name to begin with or relegate it to anonymity, is a potentially creative or destructive activity that each of us is engaged in every day. Naming is a common mythological motif. You may immediately think of Adam and God in the book of Genesis, where after God's created all of the animals, he gives Adam the power to name them. There are a couple of different versions of this scene in Genesis, and it always raises the question for me of where Adam got those names. Did he make up names? Did he label the animals that came before him? Or did he recognize them? Did he see who, what they were, and then give human expression to that essence? The difference between these two is the difference between dominion or stewardship. It defines our relationship to the rest of the world. And we know disastrously that we've been in the dominion mode. There's a short story by Ursula Le Guin that speaks to this. It's called She Unnames Them. And it's in a collection titled Hear the Silence, Stories by Women of Myth, Magic, and Renewal. I want to share a paraphrase of this story with you. It begins, Most of them accepted namelessness with the perfect indifference with which they had so long accepted and ignored their names. Whales and dolphins, seals and sea otters, consented with particular grace and alacrity, sliding into anonymity as into their element. A faction of yaks, however, protested. They said that yak sounded right, and that almost everyone who knew they existed called them that. Unlike the ubiquitous creatures such as rats and fleas, who had been called by hundreds or thousands of different names since the Tower of Babel, the yaks could truly say, they said, that they had a name. They discussed the matter all summer. Among the domestic animals, few horses had cared what anybody called them since the failure of Dean Swift's attempt to name them from their own vocabulary. Cattle, sheep, swine, asses, mules, and goats, along with chickens, geese, and turkeys, all agreed enthusiastically to give their names back to the people, to whom, as they put it, they belonged. A couple of problems did come up with pets. The cats, of course, steadfastly denied ever having had any name other than those self-given, unspoken, ineffably personal names 
which, as the poet named Eliot said, they spend long hours daily contemplating. In any case, it's a moot point now. It was with the dogs and with some parrots, lovebirds, ravens, and minas that the trouble arose. These verbally talented individuals insisted that their names were important to them and flatly refused to part with them. But as soon as they understood that the issue was precisely one of individual choice and that anybody who wanted to be called Rover or Frou-Frou or Polly or even Birdie in the personal sense was perfectly free to do so, not one of them had the least objection to parting with the lowercase, generic appellations like Poodle, Parrot, Dog, or Bird, and all the Linnaean qualifiers that had trailed along behind them for 200 years like tin cans tied to a tail. The insects parted with their names in vast clouds and swarms of ephemeral syllables buzzing and stinging and humming and flitting and crawling and tunneling away. So at this point in the story, the woman has unnamed all of the animals, and she realizes that she feels closer to them than she ever has before. So close that the fear and the desire that they all feel for each other is greatly intensified. She also realizes that she, too, should give up, wants to give up, her name. And so she goes to Adam and says, You and your father lent me this. Gave it to me, actually. It's been really useful, but it doesn't exactly seem to fit very well lately. But thanks very much. It's really been very useful. He wasn't paying much attention as he happened and said only, Put it down over there, okay? And went on with what he was doing. Now, I had been prepared to defend my decision, and I thought that perhaps when he did notice he might be upset and want to talk. I put some things away and fiddled around a little while, but he continued to do what he was doing and to take no notice of anything else. At last I said, Well, goodbye, dear. I hope the garden key turns up. He was fitting parts together and said without looking around, Okay, fine, dear. When's dinner? I'm not sure, I said. I'm... I'm going now with, uh, I hesitated and finally said, with them, you know, and went on out. In fact, I had only just realized then how hard it would have been to explain myself. I could not chatter away as I used to do, taking it all for granted. My words now must be as slow, as new, as single, as tentative as the steps I took going down the path away from the house between the dark-branched, tall dancers, motionless against the winter shining. Le Guin provides us with a really marvelous meditation here on the power of names in various ways to bring us together or take us apart. And in her story, she's focused primarily on the destructive capacity of names. Names that categorize and compartmentalize and flatten out the complexities of individual beings. On the other end of the spectrum, though, there is the awareness that we're often not aware of things unless we know their names. In this, I invoke the comments of naturalist and writer Annie Dillard. 
Annie Dillard writes, seeing is, of course, very much a matter of verbalization. Unless I call attention to what passes before my eyes, I simply won't see it. Those of you who know Dillard's work can appreciate this insight from someone who is an astute observer of the world. Dillard examines and describes the natural world in great detail with layers of complexity, and I believe that she intends to remind the reader of the human place in the world and encourage our imaginative interaction with it. Today, when you decide to speak and write precisely of the non-human world, of plants and animals or the features on the face of the land, science is usually providing the names. And scientific language is not an objective, neutral tool. Scientific names reveal a language of thingness, a catalog of empirical, quantifiable details that focus on appearance and composition and the mechanics of growth or development, reproduction. There's a preference for hierarchies of specialization. And many people, like Le Guin, comment rightly on the limitations of this. I believe that these distinctions are very important. But most of us don't know the names, common or Latin. We know no names of many of the others who surround us. And as a result of this ignorance, we're, first of all, not really in a position to participate in any meaningful way in the necessary project of shaping our language to make it something that can bring us back into the world. But we also are less likely to see the others who are around us. So the domination by means of the name commented on in Le Guin's story has maybe become, as a daily reality for many of us, domination through anonymity, through absence, through the withdrawal of our energy to name, to use specific names, and to see through them. I want to share with you a poem that Mary Oliver wrote about a walk on a beach. It's called Breakage. I go down to the edge of the sea, how everything shines in the morning light, the cusp of the whelk, the broken cupboard of the clam, the opened blue mussels, moon snails, pale pink and barnacle scarred, and nothing at all whole or shut, but tattered, split, dropped by the gulls onto the gray rocks, and all the moisture gone. It's like a schoolhouse of little words, thousands of words. First you figure out what each one means by itself. The jingle, the periwinkle, the scallop full of moonlight. Then you begin, slowly, to read the whole story. What I'm suggesting is that the process of recovering the whole story, what Le Guin was after, what Barry is after, what the Zeusian, Olympian imagination offers us in the face of the Titanic, is that whole story. A populated world, cosmos, backyard, 
where we are neighbors with and in communion with the particular, particular and specific individuals and presences. Each of us, in a sense, is Adam. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we have to give up anything that we have learned through science. I'm reminded that Goethe, who was one of the best-known naturalists in Europe, allowed his careful observation of nature to lead to the recognition of consciousness of presence and depth in the non-human world. And this recognition is what gives his work such tremendous power and lasting value for us. Learning, knowing, and using specific names is an opportunity to go deeper into the world. And it's possible, armed with what we know now about the consequences of human actions, about the consequences of our Promethean impulses, to follow the trail of words back into the world that many of us have left and know it differently. Susan Griffin, Wendell Berry, James Hillman, Mary Oliver, Annie Dillard, and I'm sure many others that you are familiar with, make the connection between seeing, knowing, naming, and the erotic, the sensual, the bonds of affection, of eros and desire that bind us in a meaningful and useful way to each other and to the world. To know the name, to use the name of something or someone is a particular form of attention. Attention is the basic form of love. And if we allow the name to be a portal into the details and the individuality of something, it can bring us into that affection that Wendell Berry has championed for decades. What we call by name and then allow ourselves to really see doesn't need to be exotic. It doesn't have to be unusual or appear initially to be singular in any way. I want to share an, an excerpt from The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram, where he is talking about the event of perception and how we can let ourselves experience and live it. And he describes his experiment in really looking at a clay boa. It begins like this. The clay bowl resting on the table in front of me meets my eyes with its curved and grainy surface. Yet I can only see one side of that surface. The other side of the bowl is invisible, hidden by the side that faces me. In order to view that other side, I must pick up the bowl and turn it around in my hands, or else walk around the wooden table. Yet, having done so, I can no longer see the first side of the bowl, Surely I know that it still exists. I can even feel the presence of that aspect which the bowl now presents to the lamp on the far side of the table. Yet I myself am simply unable to see the whole of this bowl at once. Moreover, while examining its outer surface, I have caught only a glimpse of the smooth and finely glazed inside of the bowl. 
when I stand up to look down into that interior, which gleams with curved reflections from the skylight overhead, I can no longer see the unglazed outer surface. This earthen vessel thus reveals aspects of its presence to me only by withholding other aspects of itself for further exploration. There can be no question of ever totally exhausting the presence of the bowl with my perception. Its very existence as a bowl ensures that there are dimensions wholly inaccessible to me. Most obviously the patterns hidden between its glazed and unglazed surfaces, the interior density of its clay body. If I break it into pieces in hopes of discovering these interior patterns or the delicate structure of its molecular dimensions, I will have destroyed its integrity as a bowl. Far from coming to know it completely, I will simply have wrecked any possibility of coming to know it further, having traded the relation between myself and the bowl for a relation to a collection of fragments. Even a single facet of this bowl resists being plumbed by my gaze once and for all. For like me, the bowl is a temporal being, an entity shifting and changing in time, although the rhythm of its changes may be far slower than my own. Each time that I return to gaze at the outward surface of the bowl, my eyes and my mood have shifted, however slightly. Informed by my previous encounters with the bowl, my senses now more attuned to its substance, I continually discover new and unexpected aspects. But this is in part because the bowl has changed as well, as a result, perhaps, of shifts in the light pouring through the windows, of dust and of wear, as a result, even, of my earlier explorations. When I look now at its unglazed outer surface, where I had before seen a homogeneous expanse of bright gray, I now see various faint smudges, some of them ancient and some of them recent, the record of the many hands that have held it through the seasons. Each spot invites me to peer at it more closely, to distinguish that smudge from the others, to try to discern which are the traces of my own hands and which are of hands larger or more delicate, and which may be the trace even of those hands that first threw this fine and useful bowl on some potter's wheel years ago. Can you imagine getting such wealth from a 15, 20, 30-minute encounter with a bull? I hope that stimulates you to imagine how much richer the world could be, how well we could populate this titanic emptiness if we were to undertake the project of learning names and seeing by and through them. So if this intrigues you at all, I'd like to suggest that you do a little experiment in the next week or so. Experiment number one, take something that you think that you know, something that you know the name of, and spend 15 minutes looking at it the way that Abrams did. Experiment number two, Pick something that's around you, that you pass often, that you don't know the name of, and learn it. Call this thing, this being, plant, animal, rock, whatever it is, by name every time you pass by. 
and make room for what might happen in that experience of naming. Will the newly observed details of what's around you ground you in a real way? Will it bring a felt sense of presence, of being in communion? I'm reminded that our name, the English term human, relates directly to the word humus, the earth or soil. And so the Hebrew term for human, which is the name Adam, also is the word for earth. Our names can be precisely translated as earthling or earthborn ones. Barry says that the failure of imagination that has led us to live in a culture that is dominated by boomers, that is dominated by the destruction brought by an unrecognized and unchallenged titanism, has not been inevitable. We do not have to live, he says, as if we are alone. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the Myth in the Mojave website or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. And if you find something of value in Myth in the Mojave, please join our community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you can have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there, free downloads of everything new that I create, and you can play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time, and until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.